when I hear a lot of criticism coming from a lot of people that don't spend any money with us, I look at it and say, wonderful. At least we're moving in the right direction. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. This is Jessica, head of coaching strategy at Crisp, and today we're flipping the script for another special edition episode to get Michael's take on how to strike a balance between risk and reward, why unpopular decisions often yield extraordinary outcomes, and why clarity and confidence lead to meaningful accomplishments. Having discipline and having structure and having routine and having consistency actually makes it easier to go about your day than living in a state of ambiguity and not knowing what you're going to do next. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Welcome to AMMA. All right, welcome back to another AMMA, Ask Michael Mogul Anything. If you're tuning in, this is your first time. We do a couple different types of episodes on this podcast. So we've got our interview episodes where I'm interviewing a expert from the legal industry and beyond. So those happen every single week. Then we've got our Encore editions, which we are bringing back some of the most popular episodes of the podcast. People started listening at different times over the last three years. So there may be an episode that was incredible three years ago, super popular, maybe two years ago that you never quite listened to. So we bring some of those back. And then finally, you're listening to it, the AMMA, Ask Mike Mogul Anything. You guys submit your questions. We answer them on the podcast. I'm here with Jessica Mogul. When they do submit questions... You can text me, 404-531-7691, and we try to answer as many questions as we can on the podcast. We've got probably over a 1,000 at this point to work through, but we try to theme them out, grouping them. I never know the questions in advance, so I don't know what these will be about, but Jessica, I'm excited. Let's get through as many as we can. All right. So as you mentioned, we often try to theme them, and I actually love this theme because it's something that I really actually admire with you, is that you are extremely decisive. So I'm always really great at here's three choices you decide. So all of these are really themed around that. So first and foremost, Michael, you're known for making bold decisions in business. What's your process for making these high stakes choices and how do you handle the inherent risk involved? Yeah, so this is a great question. Decision making, we talk about this on a lot of different podcasts. I'm very passionate about this because I think at the end of it all, we are made up of atoms and we are made up of decisions, meaning that our outcomes are typically a byproduct of our decisions. So meaning that wherever you are today in life, whether you're happy or unhappy, that is the result of decisions that you've made leading up into that point. So generally good decisions kind of move you closer to where you want to be and then bad decisions would move you further away. And that North Star is really based on where it is that you want to go. So your level and capability of making good decisions and making the right decisions, let's say for the context of this in your law firm and in your business will dictate whether that business grows or whether it stagnates or whether it moves in reverse. So how do you make 
the right decisions because you can slot in different leaders and different CEOs in the different organizations. And you see this all the time. For example, we see it with Disney. Under Bob Iger's leadership, Disney thrives. Bob Iger steps out for a few years. Disney starts to really struggle. The stock struggles. There's a lot of issues. Bob comes back. Boom, Disney's on the upswing again. And there's been countless stories in both business. You see this in sports. When you bring in certain leaders, it alters the trajectory of that organization. So to come back to this question in terms of the process of making high stakes decisions, so the first thing is realizing that most decisions are not high stakes. Typically, there's only a few decisions we make a year that are, Jeff Bezos has an example of this. He calls it one-way door versus two-way door decisions. So two-way door decisions are the types of decisions that you can make a decision and you can kind of come back from it. You can be wrong and you can alter the course and ultimately just change the decision later on. One-way door is locked in. That's going to alter the trajectory of your business. Those are decisions that you really want to make sure that you're making that are mentally sound, that you're in a good physical state, mental state, emotional state, so that you increase your probability of making the right decision. So that's really what it comes back to for me. When I'm making a decision, in my mind, what I work through is we want to make the right decision. So the first thing is being very clear on ultimately, some people call it vision, but where you want to go, where you want to take the firm so that you have some sort of North Star to be able to evaluate your decisions against. Because if you don't have any trajectory or any target in mind, then it's hard to know if the decision that you're about to make will move you closer or further away. So you have to be able to have some sort of metric, some North Star. The next thing I look at is when making a decision, I try to evaluate a couple things. Number one, what is the value of the upside of making the right decision? So if I make the right decision, what is the upside of that? What is the downside of making the wrong decision? Let's say if I make the wrong call, what is the cost of that? Sometimes there's a financial cost, sometimes there's a time cost, sometimes there's an opportunity cost. And then I look at two more probabilities of saying, okay, what's the upside, but then what's the probability of being right? This is all subjective. So generally you have to look at it internally and say, the upside might be high, but my probability of being right could be low. And then the downside is fairly low, but my probability of being wrong is also low. So in that case, you just go for it. Generally, the metric is most decisions, it makes sense to move forward unless the downside is high and the likelihood of being wrong, the probability is high as well. So... I stay away from any decisions that could wipe us out, any decisions that would essentially bring the business down to zero. It's not so much of an issue of being wrong. It's just that it has to be worth it. So if there is a higher probability of being wrong, then you want to make sure that the upside of being right is significant enough to alter that delta and make it worthwhile for you. So for example, placing a bet. And let's say the upside of being right is you win a million dollars. Downside of being wrong is you lose a million dollars. Your probability of being right is 50%. Your probability of being wrong is 50%. Under that case, it's like, well, upside's not really high enough, so probably not a good decision. But let's say your upside of being right is $100 million, okay? And then your downside of being wrong is still a million dollars, but it's 50-50. Okay, that probably makes sense to go for it. And then finally, the third scenario could be that your upside of being right is a million, your downside is 10 million. Let's say the odds are the same. No way. doesn't make sense. So it's really evaluating things through that lens. It's really called an expected value equation. So meaning that you want to make sure that there's enough of a difference between the upside of being right and the downside of being wrong. And then the probabilities are really in the favor of being right. And a lot of times the things that influence those probabilities is do you have enough information? So sometimes you don't know enough about the decision that you're making. You don't have enough context. You're not able to make a good decision. So usually I look at saying, do I have at least 70% of the information or 75% of the information that I need to make the right decision here? 
because anything above that just becomes procrastination. There usually is not much utility in having the time cost and the opportunity cost of gaining all the information. So 75% is usually enough. But if you don't have enough, that increases your probability of making the wrong decision. So, I mean, I could go into this in significant depth, but that's typically how I look at things. Some would say that they are more risk averse. I actually tend to think that I am probably fairly risk averse, even though it doesn't seem that way from the outside and looking in because you see us place a lot of big bets. But I am generally opposed to anything that has significant downside, could wipe us out, has a high probability of being wrong. This doesn't make sense, especially as we grow. But what I think is really important is to make decisions. So not making a decision, you're giving yourself 100% probability of actually being wrong in that case because those that are practicing inaction really never move their business forward and there's no momentum there. Even if they say, oh, well, I'm avoiding making the wrong decision, well, staying stuck is really moving backwards. So you're going to have to make decisions. It's not so much of a problem of making the wrong decision. It's the value of what is the downside of making the wrong decision. And you don't want to ever do anything that's going to wipe you out, right? You wouldn't want to invest 100% of your financial assets in NFTs, right? Or in Bitcoin or in some sort of cryptocurrency, because that can have some probability of ultimately seeing a higher expected value and a higher return. But your downside is also so great. And the probability is pretty great as well. And then also there's a lot of uncertainty. You probably don't have a lot of information there. So that's a decision that probably just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think another thing to add on that is you don't typically make decisions, especially around investing, if you yourself don't understand it. 100%. I never invest in anything I don't understand. And there's always going to be things that I think people get excited by. They'll hear it, whether it's on news or on social media. Whenever something's popularized, NFTs, then everyone feels the need to invest in that. Or when we saw Bitcoin and other types of cryptocurrency taking off, everybody becomes a Bitcoin expert. Or when the stock market's taking off, now everyone's an expert on the stock market. And it's easy to see all these experts when things are going up because there's really not a whole lot of expertise involved. They're just riding the momentum of good returns. So it's really important to understand the things that you're investing in. I tend to be a more boring investor. I like things that are more steady and consistent. I don't have to win today. I look at things over the long term. I'm a big fan of compound interest. I'm a big fan of real and tangible assets. So that may not be as exciting in the sense that there's not these moonshot returns. And look, to an extent, I'll invest in cryptocurrency, but a very small percent, maybe two or 3%. Not a huge amount because anything that's get rich quick is generally not for me. I'm a fan of get rich slow and ultimately stay rich. So it's the same thing. If anybody ever hears the term passive income, just keep scrolling. Don't even get me started on this. No, I mean, that's the, a whole other segment The best on its way own. if you want to make passive income is to just create your own course where you're promising other people how they can make passive income, make a few thousand bucks, destroy your entire reputation, and then that's it. And it's not worth it. So when I think people hear passive income, what they're really hearing is that no work involved and they don't have to do anything. But even if you get into real estate assets, you're still going to have to manage those properties. Let's say you have a lot of properties. Maybe you work with a property management group. You still have to call them and know what's going on. There's no easy money. And I think if people got away from that sooner, they'd make a lot more progress instead of trying to chase the passive returns. If you want some sort of passive returns, you can invest in the stock market in terms of index funds and the S&P 500 and forget about it for 20 years. You can see that. But that's not exciting for a lot of people, unfortunately. Yes. All right. I like the little digression there. So moving on with decision making, question two. This one is definitely, you'll have a lot to say about this. Have you ever had to make a tough call that wasn't popular with what everyone else thought? And how did you manage the naysayers and what happened next? This yeah. actually fuels you. Yeah. Let have you ever had to make that. a tough call that wasn't popular? I mean, all the time. I think the things that when you look back in our history and crisp history, the things that generated the greatest exponential returns and also that moved us forward the most were the least popular. 
the things that become the most popular that don't inspire much criticism and that many naysayers really aren't pushing the envelope very much. They tend not to be very innovative. They tend to not be outside the norm and they tend to be safe. And as a result, you're never going to see outsized returns from those things. So first one that comes to mind is our conference, like the Game Changer Summit, when we announced that back in 2018. Now at the time, now we've done five of them. So it's grown to be probably the largest law firm growth conference. But at the time when we announced it in 2018, people didn't really know Crisp as anything beyond Crisp Video and what the video company was. And I remember when we first announced it, we were getting messages from people in the legal industry, even some clients that was saying, stay in your lane. Why is Chris posting a legal conference? I don't think anybody in the legal industry was asking for another legal conference. There were several that existed. We wanted to do something different that was very much focusing on the business of law, which had not really been popularized at the time. There's a lot of great trial conferences, but none that really focused on the business side, leadership, culture, marketing, those types of topics. And we wanted to do it in a way that was very dynamic and exciting and high energy and great production and a VIP experience. And that sort of thing did not exist at the time. So we saw it as an opportunity to be able to bring that type of education in regards to the business of law into the legal industry and into that ecosystem. So there was a lot of criticism around that. We didn't know if anybody would actually end up showing up. At the first conference, we had about 500 people show up. You walk in and there's like this giant screen and like these LED screens and a DJ and big sound. And it's just, I didn't know if someone would walk in and walk right out, but it was wonderful. And people stayed all the way through. I remember on the first night we had David Goggins close out the first day at 6.30 p.m. The room was packed. And if you've been to a traditional legal conference, respectfully, what you usually see is everybody's on their laptops and they're checking email and they're tuning out and people maybe show up for lunch or a reception, but they're generally not hanging out for the entire conference, right? So we wanted to do the type of conference that it was impossible to not pay attention and not stay engaged and not stay excited. So that received a lot of criticism for sure. The other big thing has really been the expansion of our ecosystem. So when I think about our evolution from Crisp as a video company, to then as a marketing company, to then as a law firm growth and coaching company. I think that at the start, when we were a video company, we didn't ruffle anybody's feathers. There there weren't a whole lot of companies in the legal industry focusing solely on video. So we were pretty well accepted at numerous legal conferences because, again, we weren't bothering anybody. We weren't competing with the SEO companies or the other marketing companies. They were just doing video. So it was pretty harmless. And then when we expanded to the placement of said content and placing content on social media and Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, and so on, there was a little bit of friction, but still not a whole lot because a lot of the marketing companies were focusing on things like SEO and pay-per-click. And we were one of the few that was dialing in particularly on social media. But it was when we expanded to the coaching side, I think that's where all the pitchforks came out. So we decided that we really wanted to expand our impact. The videos were great at differentiating. The marketing was great at placement and getting the phone to ring. But then what happened? And we saw that there's a big foundation in the law firm in terms of the leadership, the culture, all of the foundational elements that can really dictate the success or failure of a law firm. And if you can solve those things, you can make the greatest impact for a firm. And then the marketing and the content is really the cherry on top. So when we entered that space, of course, it was a lot of stay in your lane. What are you guys doing? Even internally with the team, I think this was something that was unfamiliar to them that not everybody saw that vision. And again, this was back in 2018. So this was several years ago, but some were very supportive of reinventing ourselves and moving forward. There were many who were not. I would say that the greater legal industry was not as supportive, especially as we started doing the summit and then the book came out and then we started to really expand. We went from a very small, unknown, like very under-resourced company to then starting to get a lot more attention. And what I found is that when you put yourself out there, it's going to inspire some sort of criticism. Look at what was happening. We were growing tremendously. Our clients are seeing a ton of success. Their firms are transforming. We're making a lot of noise. We're giving away cars. I mean, I get it. I understand 
So with that comes a lot of criticism. And I think it's very important to be able to hone back in on what your North Star is, why you're doing what you're doing. We, instead of focusing externally, we focused on our clients and serving them and supporting them. And that's really what carried us through. At the end of the day, there's going to be people who are critical, but we look internally and say, well, what about the people who are actually investing with us, our clients that are actually spending money, that they are actively engaged? How are we doing for them? And if they're happy and if they're engaged and if they feel supported and if they're transforming their firms, and we were hearing like case studies every single week of incredible transformations, well, then we're going to do more of that. And if somebody else externally that does not spend any money with us that has opinions feels a certain kind of way, well, we're going to take that with a grain of salt because we're going to focus on our check writers and we're going to focus on the people that are actually a part of our community that we want to help and serve and ultimately be able to reach more people. So in terms of dealing with the naysayers, it's just important to remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing and focusing on the ones that you are supporting and that are getting value from you. And those are the ones we always look to for feedback. That's how we've evolved our offerings. We would have never evolved into the marketing or the leadership coaching or the team-based coaching if it were not from feedback from our clients in terms of they were saying, here are our challenges, here are our pain points, here's what we need. We wish the solution existed. We wish this market was served. We wish that someone could come along and help us because we didn't create these things because the solutions already existed and everybody was happy. We created them because there was a void in the marketplace. And that's usually where I think a lot of the innovation happens. But with that, a lot of the criticism happens. And what's the best way to avoid criticism? What's the saying? Say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. So it just comes with the territory. I get fired up about it now. I, I get excited about it because it tells me we're on the right track. When I hear a lot of criticism coming from a lot of people that don't spend any money with us, I look at it and say, wonderful, right? At least we're moving in the right direction because they look back in our history. The more criticism that's coming from there, the more feathers you're ruffling, the more you're on the right track. So I think that's the way to deal with it. And you can play it safe. You can be one of these people that's accepted by everyone and everybody likes and nobody criticizes, but you'll also probably be very unsuccessful and you're going to struggle to grow. I mean, yeah, it's not in your DNA. Our situation's not unique, by the way. I mean, our most successful firms are also in their markets. They're also receiving the most criticism. They have the most competition. Let's say they've got tons of Google reviews or they do a ton of things in their community and the community loves them. There's somebody has an issue with that. Anytime anyone puts themselves out there, they've got some sort of innovative idea. They're making a great impact. That's going to inspire criticism. I mean, you see this in everything. I mean, this is not unique in the business world. This is also in the sports world. Christian Horner who's the team principal at Red Bull for the F1 team. So if anybody who watches F1 or has watched the Netflix show Drive to Survive, Red Bull has been on a tear. I mean, they're on a very successful run the last couple of seasons and they're getting a lot of criticism because they're winning every single race. And they weren't getting a whole lot of criticism when they were irrelevant. So Christian Horner said that the steeper the climb, the sharper the knives. The best way to attract criticism is to win consistently. Nick Saban for you is right there, too. Yeah. All right. So still on this track of decision making, of course, but what role does intuition play? And can you share a time when you relied on your gut feeling over data or advice? Hard for me because I love data, but there is always the gut feeling as well. Yeah. So you got to be careful with that because, you know, there's going to be people that will say, well, I've always relied on my gut and it's always served me well. And I think that this depends. Sometimes it works great, but sometimes you really should go off of objective data. So for example, I find that relying on your gut when you're making hiring decisions and when you're interviewing people, that generally, at least in my experience, when we run the data, that has not been very successful. I've been right 50% of the time. I've been wrong 50% of the time. And what we found is a more successful approach to hiring the right people is having a proven hiring process, assessments to be able to actually validate things based on data. Can somebody perform the role? Are they a great culture fit? And then there's the gut aspect of, are they a hell yes or a hell no? But that's only if you've already done the assessments, then you know that they can perform in the role and they've ultimately kind of 
gone through that hiring funnel and that hiring process. So I used to ignore all those things at the very beginning. When I started the company, I would just rely on gut instinct and say, okay, well, I can like this person or they've got a great story. They're kind of like a rescue dog like me. So they've got a wonderful story. I can empathize with that. And I would think that every single time that I'd fall in love with a candidate, that they would be the right fit. And I was wrong 50% of the time. Alternatively, if I had to give an example of a time where I relied on intuition, it was probably back in probably the start of 2020. So we were in our old office. It was about 4,000 square feet lease space. We were looking at expanding our office. We had toured a lot of different locations. We found this great building, this high rise that was being built out. It was a really modern place. They were going to do a full build out for us. We would get two floors. Each floor was 20,000 square feet, so 40,000 square feet. And it would be a lease, but they would cover the whole build out. And we got so close. We did the whole floor plan, the whole space plan. We'd gotten through all the legal documents. We'd done everything minus sign the documents. I remember at our year end meeting at the end of 2019, we shared with the team, here's how we're going to be moving into this new space. And everyone's excited, but I couldn't shake the fact that I didn't feel that it was right for whatever reason. On the one hand, the lease amount was considerably high. So for each floor, it's about $100,000. Two floors, $200,000. It was a 10-year lease. So you're looking at, what, $2.4 million a year. So $24 million roughly over that 10-year span. At the end of the 10 years, they say, thank you very much. And you walk away with nothing. But it was a new building. It was in a good location. I didn't love that the team would have to park in a parking garage. That would be, you know, introduce complexity. Also, we wouldn't have control over like the regulation of like the heating and air. There was going to be other tenants in the building. You could control who was in the elevators. Couldn't necessarily control the experience. And at the time, there were no buildings available. I asked our broker, there's like, look, there's nothing in terms of if you want to buy a building. What we'd done up until that point was just we leased our offices. So there weren't a whole lot of different options at the time. And again, we got this pretty much to the point of all we had to do was just sign on. We reviewed the legal documents and at the last minute I decided, look, gut feeling that I didn't feel that was right. It didn't make sense for us to dump $24 million into a lease over 10 years. I'm a big fan of establishing equity, owning things, owning physical assets. For us also, the goal of the space was really that we would be able to host workshops there because at the time we were hosting workshops in hotels like the Four Seasons or the Ritz-Carlton. But the challenges with that is that the experiences, again, were inconsistent. We'd have to invest a significant amount of actually bringing things to the workshops, everything from like catering to AV to all the materials necessary to host a workshop. We didn't have flexibility on when we could do them because it depended on when those hotels had availability. We couldn't do multiple workshops in the same day. So this was the need for a physical space. And then also our team was growing and we had grown our current office. So this was right as the pandemic was starting. When we passed on that lease space, I was not very popular with the broker or that building at the time. But lo and behold, a building became available and it was actually originally, so our previous landlord, our old leased office, they had bought this warehouse with a corporate flooring company and they were looking to lease it out. And I met with them because we were discussing a lease. It had 120 parking spaces, roughly 50,000 square feet in a great part of town, less than five minutes from our previous office, right where the team had worked. So we were looking at leasing it. And when we looked at leasing the whole space, I asked them, I was like, why don't we just buy it? Would you be open to selling it? And again, this is in March of 2020. You've got this abandoned warehouse. It, commercial real estate is not at an all-time high. He's probably looking to dump it. But I saw this incredible opportunity. Where else can I find in West Midtown in Atlanta? 120 parking spaces, 50,000 square feet, these two giant parcels of land. So he's like, all right, well, I'll sell it to you. And the rest is history. Not very popular decision at the time. I will say just buying a building. We were signing with masks and gloves. Every closing at the time for our broker was canceled. But ended up being probably one of the best decisions we've made in the history of the company has been absolutely phenomenal. We didn't buy the building as some sort of real estate asset or appreciable asset, but 
it has ended up being such an incredible decision. I mean, we have so much control over our client experience. It's an excellent space for our team. We've got flexibility on when we can host workshops. The space is world-class. It's been an incredible from a recruiting standpoint. It's been actually excellent even as a financial investment because we own the building. We were able to do cost segregation studies from a tax standpoint. It was incredible. So I'm a believer. And I would say that that gut instinct ended up being the right decision so for somebody listening, your situation may be different. I'm not saying that it makes sense for everyone to buy a building and buy their office. But for us, the alternative was investing $2.4 million a year for over 10 years into a leasing a space. And that just didn't sit well with me. And we've got full control. We've got full parking lot. You don't have to park in the deck. It's easy for the team. So yeah, it's been a wonderful decision. Absolutely. All right. I know it's supposed to three questions, but I have one extra one. So I just want to throw this one in because it kind of ties it all up and decisions. I mean, what people make thousands of decisions a day from what they're going to wear to drink and all of the things. But decision making can get exhausting when you're running a multi-million dollar company. And how do you avoid decision fatigue and stay sharp? Yeah, I think we're all making hundreds of decisions every single day. The value of those decisions is not equal. Some are going to be much more impactful than other decisions. So I try to minimize the number of decisions that are not as impactful that I even have to make. So I delegate a lot of that decision-making to our leaders and our managers. So meaning that I don't have to approve a $25 request or whether we're going to do name tags, those types of things. Because I used to, but then I found that I'm kind of using up my decision bank on decisions that are not as impactful. I will make a decision on, are we going to move in this direction? Are we going to expand our ecosystem in terms of this new offering? Are we going to hire this executive leader? Those types of decisions I think are much more important and much more leverageable. And I think it introduced the concept of, I say this a lot on the podcast, just the importance of leverage. The idea of leverage is that your output on things and decisions is not always going to be one-to-one. So there's going to be certain things that you can do that can create 10 to one output, 100 to one output, 1000 to one output. So it's important to find those types of opportunities because not every hour is created equal. Not every task that you do is equal in terms of importance and impact. And it's being able to focus, how do I spend the majority of my time focusing on things that are the highest impact and are going to create the most amount of leverage? And then other things still need to get done. But if you're focusing on the highest leverage activities, it's figuring out how do you delegate those other tasks and find ways to be able to put systems in place or conditions in place that allow those other decisions to be made. So typically my most impactful decisions I like to make at the start of the day. So when I come into the office, I'm most fresh. I try to avoid making any high impact decisions when I'm tired or if I'm stressed or anything like that, where that decision making can be compromised if I haven't slept well. I know we've talked about this in the past where if I come in and I am stressed, I haven't slept well, it's late in the day, we're having to make a high impact decision. We will sooner reschedule that meeting then we will still make the decision because I look at the probability of being wrong there and I don't want to steer us in the wrong direction. So I'd rather make that decision when I'm fresh and clear headed. And I would encourage other leaders to do the same as well, because you know, and this can vary. I know some people, maybe they have more energy in the evening, maybe they have more energy during the day. For me, it's after I've exercised, it's after I've worked out. And that's where I usually stack either a lot of deep work at the start of the day or high impact meetings at the start of the day. And then those start to taper down as the day goes on where it's like it doesn't require as active participation or the decisions aren't as significant as the day goes on. I'll never put a meeting at the end of the day that tends to be a super high impact, high leverage, very important decision-making type meeting that requires significant energy and thought because everybody's tired at that point and I like for us to be more right than wrong. So that's really how. And then other aspects of it is just controlling your environment and being able to know going in, for example, I know every day coming in what my top three priorities are for the day. 
I know every week what my top three priorities are for the week. I know every month what our top three focus items are for the month, the same way we know what our rocks and targets are for the quarter and what they are for the year. So having those things helps with clarity. The other thing is I don't have to put a whole lot of thought into what I'm going to eat for the day or how I'm going to spend that day. I already come in with a game plan. So I know the evening before and the day before what my game plan is going to be for the upcoming day. So I don't have to make those decisions during that day. I don't have to think about, okay, what am I going to wear? It's usually like something crisp, crisp something with a crisp <laughs> logo. It keep it pretty simple, right? Same shoes every day, similar jeans every day. Like that type of stuff makes it easy to not have to focus on things that can really affect your decision making and can really reduce your decision bank. So I like structure. There's the saying, Jocko Willick, that like discipline is freedom. And I think that's where it comes from in the sense that having discipline and having structure and having routine and having consistency actually makes it easier to go about your day than living in a state of ambiguity and not knowing what you're going to do next. That doesn't mean that things don't happen and interruptions don't occur and then things come out of left field, but those tend to be exceptions and not the norm. And whenever I meet somebody and I see them kind of wandering aimlessly, it's rare that you see them ever accomplishing anything meaningful or tangible over the long term. So the people that I find that have their shit together and that operate with clarity also operate with confidence and those people on a long enough time scale will accomplish anything they set their mind to. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's all we have time for today. So thanks for brain dumping all of your decision making on us. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney podcast with Michael Mogul. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that we can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of Michael's book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot Michael a text at 404-531-7691 and ask him any question you'd like. You might just hear the answer on the next episode. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it will help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.